You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Morning to you. Hey, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. If we don't know each other, I'm usually sitting behind a piano. So I get to share God's word with you uh, this morning. You ever take a vacation before and uh, come back and go, man, I need another vacation. I need to rest. Uh, My family and I uh, did something similar where we took a vacation. We did 18 and a half hours of driving, and all we seemed to do was uh, pack up our stuff and then go to the next place. Part of the reason for that is because we, uh, we ended up in North Shore Lake Tahoe, where we had planned on staying a few days. And upon arrival, we thought to ourselves, we're not going to stay here long uh, because it was so smoky. It was so smoky from the mosquito fire that was happening just down the hill in Placer in El Dorado County that has taken up just miles and miles uh, of acres burned in a forest fire. We ended up going down the, the I-80 from Lake Tahoe to Sacramento, and we drove through what felt like a th- the, one of the thickest fogs that I've ever driven through, and it was just all smoke. And what's fascinating about these forest fires, I mean, people are being displaced, and it's awful, but I mean, the... the the immensity of these and how fast they, they um, spread and grow, it's just incredible. Well, if you're just joining us uh, now, we've been in the book of Acts where we've seen a figurative fire break out uh, the, the message of the gospel and begin to spread, not in a destructive way, but in the most productive way possible that uh, we've seen the gospel spread from uh, Jerusalem and then spread to Judea and Samaria, and now we get to see that it's spreading to the ends of the earth. And this has been happening all the way through Scripture. From the beginning in Genesis, uh, we see uh, God proclaiming the first gospel in Genesis 3, then all the way through the Old Testament to the book of Acts, where uh, the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples at Pentecost, and now that gospel blaze is spreading um, through to uh, the, the ends of the earth. It's like the, uh, the theologian William Joel once said that we didn't start the fire, it was always burning since the world's been turning, right? Um, Maybe that'll occur later. But we've seen the ingredients of that fire um, really manifest themselves and pepper through the, the book of Acts, that the hand of the Lord was with the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the courageous witness of the disciples proclaiming the gospel by their words and by their actions. And so today we get to... Um, uh, continue in our unity series together, uh, where I'll kind of tease out that fire analogy throughout uh, this message this morning and ask this question, how are the flames of unity fanned? How are the flames of unity fanned? In other words, is there another essential ingredient uh, in our gospel unity that would cause us to burn more brightly as individuals, as a church, and then to those around us spreading wildfire? What is one way that we as a people 
uh, can, what can we do to fan the flame of unity of Christ? And so we're going to look at this church uh, all the way back in Acts 11 in Antioch, a church that burned brightly for the cause of Christ. And then we're going to look more specifically uh, to Barnabas and his ministry to these new Christians uh, there in Antioch and see how he fanned the flame that led to church unity all the way back then. And we can follow his example as well. And so why don't you, if you have a Bible, turn it to Acts 11 and meet me in verse 19. If you have a phone, you can um, check it out there as well. Acts eleven nineteen is where we're at. And I'll read the first couple of verses for us, and then we will see what we can take away together. All right. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A real persecution uh, broke out after the stoning of one of uh, those disciples, Stephen, um, happened in what... Despite that persecution, the church burned even more brightly in Jerusalem, spreading to Judea and Samaria, and then started to make its way to the ends of the earth, starting in a a place called Phoenicia, which is right above Galilee, a coastal uh, strip there on the Mediterranean Sea, then to Cyprus, which is a large island that's just west of there on the Mediterranean Sea, and then above that, north in Antioch, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. And we see that this was made possible by the hand of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit was on his church. And as we learned last week from Pastor Bob, that uh, this gospel that was being proclaimed was not just for a monocultural group of people. It wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for everyone everywhere, that God had, had, had designed his gospel to go to every tribe, every nation, and people of every language. This gospel started to spread like wildfire um, because of the courageous witness of the disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, taking God at his word to share their faith with other people who were different from them. Um, It says that they shared their faith with the Hellenists. These were Greek people, they were Gentiles, and they, with courage, shared their faith, and people started to believe, so many that it became a great number who started to believe in Christ. And a church broke out. Church broke out in the city of Antioch, which was a really important city in the, uh, the Roman Empire. Third largest city uh, there in the Roman Empire, about half a million people. It was a very beautiful city to go to with beautiful buildings and, and uh, streets that were laid with precious stones and, and marble. It was a port city, uh, a center for uh, commerce and luxury. It was, it was a city that was uh, really diverse by, by nature. Um, it was also a, a, a place with uh, real influence in the Roman Empire and great political power. If we were to make a, a, a modern-day American equivalency, it would be a city like San Francisco up north of here and uh, 
New York on the East Coast, very similar to the city of Antioch. It's also a city that was steeped in sin and debauchery, which was the perfect breeding ground for the gospel to take root. They were ripe for the gospel. They were ripe for a new uh, church plant. Look at verse 22 now. It says, the report of this church plant in Antioch came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Jerusalem, of course, is where the movement started, where the church elders were, where the mother church existed, so to speak. And as the leaders of this uh, Jesus movement, um, it was their job to really have boots in the ground to see what was going on in this new church plant uh, where uh, this movement started to catch fire. And if, if I could just take a moment to <clears throat> read between the lines here, I think this is where the tension point begins to, to, to rear its head in the text. Because Antioch is a completely different place than Jerusalem. It's completely different. The place is different. The values are different. The morality is different. The religious history is different. The politics are different. The people are different. It's different in all kinds of ways. And in light of these differences, it must have been on the elders' minds, how do we keep unified amid all of these differences? See, Jesus' message had really caught fire, became a wildfire, and started to burn in places that were very different than where the movement had begun, right? And we need to consider that same question. As people who follow Jesus Christ, how would we keep unified amid a host of differences? People who are different than us. Churches that are different from us. Denominations that are different from us. States that are different from ours. Countries that are different from ours. How would we keep unified amid all of those differences? And we need to consider that really deeply, I think, as followers of Christ, because our natural disposition is toward an adversarial and polarized attitude, right? That's because of our own sin in our hearts and what culture would suggest, especially in modern-day America. And I wish that for us as Christians, that was just something... In secular culture, and we see it out there, but not in here, but that's not true, right? That's not true. We have the same type of polarized attitudes even within the body of Christ. There was this sort of unfortunate slogan that started to, to pop up in uh, the reform circles of uh, reformed uh, theology in America that said, truth before friendship. Truth before friendship. If I'm honest, that sounds more like what a politician would say, not what a follower of Jesus Christ would say. Jesus who laid his life down for his enemies, right? Theologian John Frame commented in, in, by contrast to that, saying that we've got to consider the effect of our words when we speak truth to anyone, Christian or non-Christian alike, the effect that it has on them. What we say is important, who we say it to, important, and how we're saying it, important. Those things are all important. 
That's the big idea of why, why we spent so much time thinking together about unity in Christ. That's why it's valuable for us to consider those things. Well, the mother church there at Jerusalem, they did an intentionally, made an intentionally unifying decision by sending Barnabas to stoke the flames uh, that had lit up in Antioch. Let's find out why. Look at, look at verse 23. 23 says, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. I love that. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This was a, a, a man who would fan the gospel flame that had lit up in the Gentiles at Antioch. He would approach these new believers in good faith rather than snap judgment. And I think they knew what they were doing by sending Barnabas because of his cross-cultural experience as well. See, Barnabas was Jewish, but he was also from Cyprus, so he was a cross-cultural Jew, right? He would have been more uh, cross-culturally uh, uh, sympathetic, I suppose, to these people in Antioch, remaining curious in his conversations with them, right? Barnabas, as we learned about a few weeks ago, his, his, his birth name was Joseph, but they actually, they, they gave him a nickname, Barnabas, because he was such an encourager to the church that they named him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Well, how did, how did Barnabas, the son of encouragement, fan the flame of unity uh, in these new disciples, these Gentiles in, in Antioch? Well, firstly, Barnabas went to Antioch. He was physically present there with these new believers and saw the grace of God in action. I, I think it's, it stands to reason that, that we could see the grace of God in action from afar. We probably could do that. I love when missionaries, our missionary part, partners come and give testimony about what's going on around the world. I love that, and I think you do as well. But... Barnabas being there with them, I think he got a clearer picture of the grace of God in other people. When we send our, uh, coming up, when we send our, our uh, missionary team to Sierra Leone, Africa, I think that our team is going to get a clearer 360 view of what's going on, seeing the grace of God in people that are different from us um, in our brothers and sisters there in West Africa. And that's what happened with Barnabas going to Antioch, seeing the grace of God in people that were different from him. In all the ways that uh, we can imagine or that we've talked about before, committing their lives to Jesus Christ. And that was cause for Barnabas to rejoice it says that he was glad about it. He was glad that he celebrated the fact that God was working in people who were different than him. What I found so striking as I've checked this passage out over the last um, number of weeks is that this seems to be the converse of our current culture, right? That what we're, what, what, how we behave contradicts this passage completely, that we look at small curated slices of other people's lives, um, 
from far away, right? We then judge those who might disagree and who are different from us. And in a sense, that type of behavior, um, when there's gospel flames happening in other people's lives or in other, organization, other Christian organizations' lives, it's kind of like throwing cold water on those, right, when we judge from afar. But Barnabas did the opposite. He fanned the flame that led to unity um, in these believers, looking at their lives up close and personal, getting a more 360 view of what was going on, rejoicing because of God's grace in diversity. So we see Barnabas really living up to his spiritual profile as as a, a man that was full of the Holy Spirit, that was full of faith, living up to that title as son of encouragement. It says that Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Exhorted. Some of your translations say, instead of exhorted, it says encouraged or he urged them, or, or, or in some even stronger, he begged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And that's important in, in, if, you, if you look at the Greek text. That word, uh, which is parakaleo, encapsulates all of those concepts together, right? Para, meaning that he came alongside. Kaleo, that, that he, uh, he encouraged them tenderly, but also he exhorted them strongly that, that Barnabas came alongside of them and spoke grace and truth. Grace and truth, urging them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, if you know me uh, well enough now, you know that I can't get through a sermon without talking about uh, riding a bicycle with spandex on. So. Let's just do it again. Um, A couple weeks ago, I was on a bike ride uh, with my cycling club. We, uh, on the Saturday morning ride, uh, typically, what happens coming northbound on PCH is that it, it kind of cranks up to a spicy pace, all right? And a simulated race starts to happen. And uh, on that particular day, I found myself leading the peloton out on the front, which if you're trying to win a sprint, that's probably not where you're going to win it from if you know anything about race tactics on a bicycle. But I decided that I was going to do that and throw caution to the wind, and I am not a, you know, a big rider, but you know what? Oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So I got in the front and started to drill it um, beyond my better judgment. Well, it seemed like an eternity that I was up there. It was probably seconds, but it seemed like an eternity. And I started to mentally and physically fade, right? And that's when a friend of mine who was on my wheel started to encourage me. Right? He started yelling out encouragements. That was the perfect time for him to actually you know, hurl out a judgment. Right? Get off the front, what are you doing? Ah! But instead, he encouraged me, keep going. You can do it, keep going. It was probably for selfish reasons, if I'm honest. Because <laughs> all the sprinters like, but, 
But the fact was is that instead of taking that moment to hurl out a judgment, he, t- he took that more moment to exhort, right? And I began to think, what would happen if we as followers in Jesus Christ adopted my friend's attitude? Encouraging the grace of God in other people rather than immediately judging them. What if we did that? Did my friend and I end up talking about race tactics later at the coffee shop? Well, of course, we always do that, right? It's not that it was without truth, but his... his priority was to encourage the work that was being done first, right? And I wonder if you could think about your, um, just about your spiritual journey throughout the years that you've been a Christian or whenever. Was there a Barnabas in your life? Someone who took an interest in you and really encouraged you and exhorted you to remain faithful in the Lord, someone who noticed the grace of God working in your life and was glad about it, someone that came alongside you in that similar parakaleo ministry, coming alongside, speaking grace and truth in your life, exhorting you to remain faithful. I can remember at 19 years old, there was a pastor in his 30s who had really taken an interest in me and spent a disproportionate amount of time encouraging me in the Lord. I mean, did we have conversations that really challenged the way that I was living my life? Of course we did. But he spent a disproportionate amount of time encouraging me and exhorting me to remain faithful to the Lord. And I think it's worth our energy to consider how much we're encouraging others versus how much we are judging and critiquing them, right? Theologian Fred Bruce he, he kind of notes, and I think accurately, that there's, there's no sin to which Christians, specifically keen Christians, are more prone to than criticizing others. That's what we do. And this comes in, in overt judgments, like we've talked about before, splashing cold water on the flames of, of the gospel that have, have really sparked. But also, there, there's... For some of us, we criticize because of a felt need to protect the fire, all right? We feel like this is something that we really need to protect. If you could imagine the church of Jerusalem doing that in the city of Antioch. Man, we gotta protect this. We gotta make sure they're doing everything right. And really what happens when we protect the fire, ironically, is that it burns out, right? We don't feed it fuel. We don't feed it oxygen, right? I think Barnabas had a a real opportunity when he went to Antioch to judge them and criticize them upon arrival. Well, here's all the things that you're not doing that we're doing in Jerusalem. You know how many people sprouted up in Jerusalem? Look Look at the size of our church. And I think he could have gone on and on trying to mold them into a cultural clone of himself, but he didn't. He didn't. He went for their heart, right? He went for their heart, encouraging the grace of God in them and was glad about it. He fanned the flame of unity. And fanning the flame of unity, or fanning the flame in them, led to unity, and it was effective in their church. All right? It actually produced a result. Encouraging them to love God and neighbor in their local context produced a 
result. It was contagious, and a great many people were added to the Lord that day. The hand of the Lord was with them in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Antioch believers were zealous about their faith, um, telling other people about the Lord, and Barnabas's parakaleo ministry coming alongside people, encouraging them in the Lord, worked. So much so that Barnabas had to go get his buddy Saul, bring him back, later Paul, to share in that gospel work. Look at, look at verse 25. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were called Christians. Fanning the gospel flame in other people produced a result. It resulted... Um, in a few things. That the Antioch church was, was a committed church. They were a committed church. Committed to ongoing discipleship. We see that Barnabas and, and Saul stayed with the church for a year, pouring into them. They were a church that were committed to caring for other people in need. Um, we see that they took up a relief offering to send back to the mother church in Antioch while a famine was going on to to, um, to provide for their needs. This is a church that was committed, if we read farther in, in uh, uh, chapter 13, committed to uh, diversity, culturally, socioeconomically, ethnically, that we see in, in chapter 13 that the church leadership reflected Antioch um, as a city, a people of diversity. It was also a, a, a people that were spiritually disciplined, while they were fasting and worshiping and praying one day, they got the idea that they would send Barnabas and Saul out on their missionary journeys, which meant that they were a church committed to outreach for uh, unreached people groups as well. Not only were they a committed church, but they were a church that we couldn't categorize. Um, <clears throat> that's what I love about the Church of Antioch because they couldn't be categorized by their ethnicity or their politics or their class. They were only bound by Jesus Christ himself. They were so countercultural in their day that they were given the nickname Christians. And so people around them in the city didn't know what political party to put them in. They just had really, in many ways, nothing in common except for Christ. And so what they did is take the Latin suffix eans, which means belonging to the party of, and they smashed it up with the Hebrew word Christ, and so it became Christians, belonging to the party of Christ. These people have no other affiliation that, that we could mash them up in, so they're just part of the Jesus party, Right? And I hope that's what people think of us as a church as well. That when they see a bunch of people who are ethnically, culturally uh, diverse in social status and politics and in age, there's only one thing that could be the unifier, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Amen? They were also a church that made a difference ultimately in the people around them and in the people in the world across history. Some say that Antioch was one of the most important churches ever. And that's probably not a, an overstatement. Sending Paul, uh, Saul and, and, and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, um, to start other churches and proclaim the gospel, we have the church of Antioch now as Gentile believers to thank. We, we can thank them for their faithfulness. 
And much of their faithfulness was fanned into flame by Barnabas' ministry to them, his encouragements of them, his exhortation of them. His ministry of an encouragement mattered to the flourishing and unity in the body of Christ. And guess what? Your encouragement and exhortations matter as well. That you engaging in the same parakaleo ministry matters as well. If there is nothing that you remember from this sermon today, I hope that you would remember this, that we are going to get a whole lot farther in the cause of Jesus Christ by our encouragement of others uh, more than our judgment of them. Amen? We will. We're going to get a whole lot farther in encouraging them versus judging them. Well, with all of that in mind, what's my hope for us as a people? What's my hope for us as a people here at our church and, and individually? Well, first of all, I'd want to just do what Barnabas did and encourage you to remain faithful in the Lord as well. I think it's important that there are so many things for me um, that are fine for my heart, things that are... Um, outright sinful, things that are even good things that I place as ultimate things, people, places, and things that I put in the place of where my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ could be, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. But also, here's what I would want you to consider. How could you fan the flames of the gospel in other people? How could you do that? How could you fan the flames of Christ in someone else? How could you come alongside and encourage someone else in the Lord? You might think to yourself, I'm not sure that my words and my, my actions matter. I'm asking you to change your mind because they do. They do. Your words and your actions matter. Whether you're here at church, whether you're at your job, whether you're at the park with the kids, wherever you live, work, and play, online, social media, wherever you are, your words and your actions matter matter. And we are all entrusted in, um, in fanning the flame of unity in the body of Christ. We're all entrusted in being united in that. So friends, let's continue to encourage each other because Jesus is coming back in that day. It's drawing nearer and nearer and nearer every day. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, showing us what you are like uh, by the faithful saints like Barnabas. You're tender, you're compassionate, you're encouraging. Thank you for inviting all of your children into your kingdom, and I pray that we would see other people the way that you see them. We confess uh, together that we often are afraid uh, to examine the ways that we don't align with your kingdom purposes. And that purpose is to accept every single person who would claim Christ as Savior without any reservation. And we repent of the ways, like Romans 14 says, that we destroy the work of God with, with our judgments and our criticisms, criticisms of them. Help us to follow in the footsteps of our brothers and sisters in Antioch who proclaim Christ to others with courage. Help our unbelief in thinking that our words don't matter and don't make a difference. Cause, our, uh, cause us like Barnabas to fan the flame of Christ in others, promoting unity of your church. 
Jesus, we ultimately take our encouragement from you and are comforted by your love for us. Help us to share that love, being one in spirit and of one mind. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.